been looking at various psalms throughout the book of Psalms, and all the psalms that we've looked at thus far have come from book one. The, the Psalter is d- divided into five different books, and we've been looking at Psal- book one, which is Psalms 1 through 41. This morning, though, we're going to move to book three, which is Psalms 73 through 89, and we're going to look at Psalm 84, which is found on page 626, if you're using a pew Bible, Psalm 84. And as you're turning to Psalm 84, uh, Palmer Robertson, who's, who's a theologian, described book one as, as, book, as psalms of confrontation, psalms of conflict. Here as we move to book three, he's called them psalms of devastation. Uh, because a foreign enemy has devastated God's people in his house uh, and has sent them into exile. Much the way, same way as on September 11, 2001, uh, foreign enemies devastated us here with airplanes crashing into our national symbols of freedom and security and greatness in New York City and here in D.C. But in the midst of these psalms of devastation in book three are a few psalms of encouragement. And one of those psalms of encouragement is Psalm 84, which we'll read now. To the choir master, according to the Gittith, a psalm of the sons of Korah, Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion, As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. O Lord God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob, Selah. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, Blessed is the one who trusts in you. Shall we pray? Father, again we come and ask that you would pour out your spirit upon us, that you would guide us and lead us into your truth. Lord, that you would give us a zeal to follow you, to worship you with your people. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When we hear the words beatitude, we may think of Jesus' statements that come from his Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, is one of of his beatitudes. And of course, we would not be wrong to think of those as beatitudes, because they are. They're statements of blessing. But within Psalm 84, there are three beatitudes, three statements of blessing. And so that's how I'll structure our time this morning. Uh, The first one is this. Blessed are those who dwell in God's house. Blessed are those who dwell in God's house. Is the psalmist here referring to those who live in the house of God, the the Levites and the priests, some of whom who live there, at least for parts of the time there, or only those who worship in the house of God from time to time? He says in verse 4 here, Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. In other words, those who spend time in God's presence. God puts a new song in the hearts of those who spend time in his presence. But perhaps we should back up here for a moment here and ask, who is the author of this song? And the short answer is, we don't know who the author is. This is not called a psalm of David, as so many of the other psalms are. This is a psalm of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah may have been singers in the temple of God or gatekeepers there in his temple or even bakers there. A number of psalms are called the psalms of the sons of Korah, including the first two psalms in book two, Psalms 42 and Psalm 43. And this psalm appears to have been sung and used in corporate worship. Again, if we look at the beginning of the psalm, it says to the choir master, According to the Gittith, which if you look at your footnote, says probably a musical term or a literary term. In other words, nobody really knows precisely what it means, but it would have been used in worship, in public worship, like we're doing here this morning. So we're not sure when this psalm was written. We're not sure of the specific circumstances in which it was written. But what is, what is clear is this, that the psalmist is really passionate and zealous to worship God. Again, look at verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts, Yahweh of armies. How lovely is your dwelling place. How I love to worship with you and your people. We know that God promised to meet with his people in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet we also know as did God's people at that time, that God could not be limited to one place. He could not be confined to one temple in Jerusalem on Mount Zion or anywhere else. In fact, Isaiah writes in chapter 66, verses 1 and 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool, the place where I put my feet. What's the house? What is the house that you would build for me, God says? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord Yahweh. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in heart and spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, the psalmist has a zeal, a passion to meet with God. As he expresses it in verse 2, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living 
God. There is nothing half-hearted or lukewarm about his desire to worship God. He is all in. There is incredible joy coming into the presence of the living God as he is called here, Yahweh, the covenant Lord. Is this our experience of worshiping God with his people? Do we come this morning and each Sunday full of, of eagerness, full of expectation, full of joy that we are meeting with the living God, the living and true God. Is that our expectation this morning? The context for this psalm, as I mentioned, may be devastation. It may not be sunny skies and roses and butterflies and good times and prosperity that's driving him into the presence of God. No, it may be hard times and adversity that are the backdrop for this psalm, fainting for the courts of the Lord. He may be longing for peace and security in a time and place where there are no peace and there is no security. And certainly we know what that felt like on September 11th, 2001. We know what it's like to to lack peace and security, to feel incredible vulnerability as we look back on that time 20 years ago. And church attendance increased in some places momentarily after 9-11, at least for a little while. Everyone longs for peace and security, especially in times of devastation. Verse 3 says of Psalm 84, Even the sparrow finds a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. It's the nature of birds as as well as humans to find a place of peace and security. The mother bird wants to build a nest in a place that is safe for her young, where her eggs will not be disturbed before they are ready to hatch. And for that reason, it's curious here, is it not, that the psalmist mentions that the mother bird may lay her young at your altars, O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. At the temple in Jerusalem, there were, at least at at different periods, two altars. A larger one outside the temple area that was for burnt offerings, and a smaller one that was in front of the Holy of Holies, where incense would be offered. So on the one hand, building a nest in a place where offerings would be made and and burned, burned there as well would not seem to be a good place for a bird to nest. And for that reason, a number of commentators suggest that the mother bird might have been more likely to build a nest in a more quiet, less busy place in the temple area rather than at the altar. But if a place of peace and security is what you're looking for, then spiritually speaking, the altar was a symbol of of our need for sacrifice in order to have peace with God. And it's true that the sacrifice of goats and bulls could never take away human sin once and for all, which is why there needed to be sacrifices offered again and again, more bulls, more goats, because they couldn't take away human sin. And they called for a more perfect sacrifice that could take away sin once and for all. And that's precisely what Jesus did on the cross. He offered himself once and for all to take away human sin and reconcile repentant sinners to God for those who put their trust in him. 
So from a New Testament perspective, an altar is a place of sacrifice. It's a place of spiritual and relational peace with God because of what, what is offered there. And by the way, we don't have an altar here. This is not an altar in front of us. This is a communion table. And the reason we don't have an altar here, we have a communion table, is that no more sacrifices are needed. When Jesus paid it all on the cross, he put an end to the need for any more sacrifices. And the whole sacrificial system of the Old Testament came to an end eventually. The psalmist here addresses God as Lord of hosts, the King, his King and God. In a world full of powerful enemies, he's looking for peace. He's looking for security. In an all-powerful God, Lord of hosts, whose armies of angels are larger and more powerful than any human enemies. So again, verse 4. Blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praise, Selah. So what is the application of this then for Christians? We who come thousands of years after this psalm was written. We seek God's presence in his temple. But where is his temple today? His temple is wherever his people gather. Here with us this morning, but also in, in thousands of other places around the world as God's people meet together in his house on his day. There are no more earthly temples in Jerusalem. There hasn't been one since 70 AD there. And even if there were, one of the main purposes for having a temple was to offer sacrifices. And Jesus, again, did away with the need for sacrifices. So we don't need a physical temple in Jerusalem or anywhere else. No, God meets with his people as we gather together for worship. Jesus told a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 that the key issue is not where people go to worship God, but who they worship and how they worship. Listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. But the hour is coming, and now is here, when true worshipers will worship who? Worship the Father. In spirit and truth. How? In spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, it's not just fervent emotion or affection that God is seeking, though he is seeking that. There must also be truth as well. Yes, there is to be fervent emotion, there is to be affection, there is passion, there is to be zeal, there is to be an earnest seeking after God, as we've seen in, in verse 2 here. But there's also to be truth as well. We need to come in spirit and in truth. And it's not just an individual pursuit of God here, it's corporate. It's about people gathered together, the body of Christ, Worshiping together with his people. That's where the temple is in the New Testament. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 and 19, about where the temple is now. For through him, that is through Jesus, we both, that is Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you Gentiles are no longer aliens and strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. 
In him, that is in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So in other words, God's temple is wherever his people gather together. And so that's why we worship corporately. We worship together because that's where God meets his people fundamentally. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that you, you plural, are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you corporately as you gather. So if we want to meet with God, we must meet with his, his dwelling place. And he dwells with his people. And so that's why we gather together corporately as a body, communally in the context of community. But that's also what makes it hard. Because as we started our service this morning, we said that God is beautiful. We gaze at the beauty of the Lord. And yet we know that God's people, we are not always so beautiful. We're not as lovely or beautiful in our words and deeds and attitudes. And this can turn people away from God and can turn people away from his church as well. When his people, when we are not always lovely. And yet if you want to meet with God and worship him and experience the joy and peace of his presence, you must do this with other Christians. And so yet, so we gather together as, as sinners, and hopefully as repentant sinners, we gather. None of us are perfect. We're not as beautiful as we ought to be. We're, God is not finished with us yet, thankfully. But we gather together to worship, and we do that not just by ourselves, but we do that with other Christians, because this is God's plan, that we worship not individually, primarily, but we worship together, which is why virtual worship can only go so far, because we're not gathered together physically, though we can experience aspects of worship. God wants us to meet with him corporately with his people in person. And through Jesus' perfect sacrifice, the door is always open. But we have to get rid of our individualistic American notions that we can do this on our own. This is primarily about just me and Jesus. No, it's not. It's about us together meeting with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit spirit. Blessed are those, plural, who dwell in your house. We are to worship and seek God earnestly, with zeal, with passion, but we are to do this together, corporately, communally. And that brings us to the second beatitude in this psalm here. Blessed are those who journey to God's house. Blessed are those who journey to God's house. Blessed are those who make pilgrimage, we might say, to God's house. Sometimes it's not possible for people to, to physically come to God's house. When the temple was destroyed, for instance, in 587 B.C. and the people were in exile, they could not physically go to God's house. They could only make pilgrimage in their hearts. But here the second beatitude, the sta second statement of blessing is found in verse if you'll look at that with me. Verse 5. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, in whose heart are the highways to Zion. The New King James Version says, Blessed is the man whose, whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on pilgrimage. God's people can withstand the attacks of enemies, and the setbacks and difficulties of life in this fallen world, if our strength is in Yahweh and in him 
alone, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. One of the people who died on September 11, 2001, who seemed to have his heart set on pilgrimage, was Todd Beamer, one of the passengers on board United Flight 93. Todd Beamer was a Christian, and as I was reading a little bit more about him yesterday, I, I learned that he and the three other men who orchestrated the, the uh, resistance on board the plane were all athletes. Todd Beamer had gone to Wheaton College in Illinois, and he was the captain of the basketball team there. And so he was a physically confident person even at age 32, which he was back in 2001 when he boarded this flight. He was courageous. And as, as we learn of the conversation that he had on, with the woman on the phone, uh, he asked her to pray the Lord's Prayer with him before they carried out their plan to resist the terrorists on that flight. And then they recited Psalm 23 together. And then he said, are you guys ready? Okay, let's roll. Pilgrimage is about going on a journey, heading in a certain direction with our lives, toward God and toward his temple, toward his people. It's about seeking to live in ways that are pleasing to him, even in the midst of devastations and setbacks in life. The highways were the roads that went above the marshes that made it easier to get where you're going in much the way, same way that highways make it easier for us to get where we're going today too. But it's about taking the highway, the, the high road to get there. There's a joy in journeying to God's house, even in the midst of difficulties, even in the midst of sorrows, which the psalmist mentions here in verse 6. As they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. No one, no scholar knows precisely where the valley of Baca is, but some have said that it was a valley of tears and that the water that's mentioned here are metaphors of the fellowship and the blessedness after a prolonged period of adversity. On our spiritual journeys, there are hardships along the way, hardships that can devastate us and discourage us, and we need the strength of God to persevere to endure to the end. There can be disappointments with jobs and careers, loss of loved ones, struggles with other people and their strong opinions, whether those are family members or church members or other people, and hard times financially as well. By the grace of God, his people persevere to the end of their journey. They make it to Zion. They go in verse 7, as he says, from strength, to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion as he strengthens us to make it to the end, to our destination. Zion is the place where God's temple is, where God meets with his people. And from a New Testament perspective, we're heading toward the new Jerusalem, the heavenly city, the heavenly Mount Zion, as the writer of the Hebrews puts it in chapter 12, verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. It's not easy on this pilgrimage to get to the heavenly city, the heavenly Zion. And it wasn't necessarily easy to get to the earthly Zion either. But God's strength can and will sustain you by his Holy Spirit from strength 
to strength, from glory to glory, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So that brings us then to the third beatitude, the third statement of blessing here. Blessed are those who trust in the God who meets you in his house. Blessed are those who trust in the God who meets you in his house. This third beatitude comes from our last verse in Psalm 84, verse 12. O Lord God of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. When we experience hardships, either nationally, like the attacks on September 11, 2001, or internationally, like the pandemic that we're still facing right now, or as a family, or individually, we can be tempted to give up on God and say, if God really loved me, he wouldn't allow me to go through such a severe trial as this one that I'm experiencing. But just remember what God did with his son. He sent his one and only son to go through a lifetime of trials here on earth, a journey of trials culminating in his death on the cross, a lifetime full of trials. But then he raised Jesus from the dead. So Jesus did go from strength and glory to strength and glory. He went from heaven to earth in weakness, but then back to heaven again. And our prayer is the same prayer as the psalmist prays here in verses 8 and 9, Psalm 84. O Lord God of hosts, of armies, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed. God's anointed may have been his anointed king for the psalmist or his anointed priest who offered prayers and sacrifices for his people. But from a New Testament perspective, this anointed one is none other than Jesus, the Messiah. He is both the anointed king and the anointed priest that, we've, that his people were waiting for and looking for. He is our shield who protects us. He is the anointed one whose face we want God the Father to look upon. He lived a perfect life. There were no sins in his life. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice, though he was sinless, both of which we need to be accepted by God and both of which he offers on our behalf. So if we are discouraged on our spiritual journey, as we walk through the valley of Baca, the valley of tears perhaps, let us look to God for strength. Let us trust in God for strength. And verse 10 reminds us that for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. How long are a thousand days? Almost three years. Is a day in God's presence really better than three years anywhere else? You pick your favorite place. Is it really better? The psalmist certainly thinks so. In fact, he goes on to say in verse 10, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. The wicked may be pursuing the highest pleasures that this life has to offer, eating, drinking, being merry. But the psalmist knows that solid joys and lasting pleasures are found in Zion, in and with God and with his people as well. 
Verse 11, for the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God doesn't give us everything we want to know, but he does not withhold any good thing that we need in this life. God promises to protect us along the way to help us to make it to the end of the journey to Zion, whatever the outcome of our lives. To rely on his grace and his spirit to sustain you, to guide you, to make it to the heavenly city, to seek him earnestly, and not to do this individually, but to do this with his people, even his imperfect people, which all of us are. He will bless those who who meet with him, who dwell with him, those who pursue him, who set their face on pilgrimage, and those who trust in him through all the twists and turns of life, all the devastations and setbacks of pilgrimage, so that we make it to the end, to the heavenly city, where we experience both joy and peace in his presence with his people. May God help us to make it to that destination, shall we pray. Lord, we thank you for these statements of blessing, these beatitudes. Uh, Thank you that you are the one who watches over your people, who helps them to make it to their destination, who helps them on their pilgrimage, on our pilgrimage, along the way as we hit devastations, as we hit setbacks. We thank you that it is your grace that sustains us to make it to the end. And we thank you, Lord, that you promised to meet with your people in your temple. And we thank you that your people now are your temple, so that as we gather here together corporately, that you are with us. And that as other churches gather in different places, you are with them as well. That you are not limited or confined by one space but that you can hear all of us as we pray together even at the same time. Lord, we thank you that you are the Lord of hosts, that you are the Lord of armies, that you are more powerful than any of our enemies. And we thank you for your anointed one, our king and our priest, Jesus, whose face you look at and whose face we look towards, that we might be accepted by you, that we might experience your peace and your joy. It's in his name we pray, amen.